0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: We made it to Friday once again. Glad you're with us for the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool. we got a lot to talk about here in Good, Bad, and Crazy Martinis. All of them uh, with a lot of different layers. But uh, first of all, Jim... We don't get a lot of good news about our football teams in January or February. The free agency season and the draft lately seem to be our most exciting times. But last night, uh, the Hall of Fame class for 2023 was announced, and two of your beloved New York Jets will be headed to Canton, Ohio. Darrell Rivas, the outstanding uh, cornerback who helped the Jets get to -to back-to-back AFC Championship games around the time we started the podcast— and then the outstanding uh defensive lineman Joe Klecko uh from the glory days of the New York Sack Exchange. So congratulations
2: to them and to you. Thank you Greg, and I would point out that last night they announced the NFL's offensive rookie of the year and defensive rookie of the year, both of whom were Jets. Uh Garrett wow. Wilson the wide receiver on offense and uh Sauce Gardner the cornerback for the Jets on defense. I would point out that this is, you know, describes being a Jet fan. In a, in a perfect summary, when it's really, really great, you're thinking about a long-forgotten past and a future that's pretty off, far off in the future. <laughs> the present stinks, but sooner or later, something's going to get better. Yeah. So what
1: you need to do, Jim, to figure out how to get to the mountaintop sooner is to spend apparently four days in complete darkness. <laughs> That's what Aaron Rodgers is doing to figure out his future. I don't actually. I don't recommend that for anyone. He's kind of weird, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what he does. And if he ends up a Jet, I know we've talked about that before. But uh, hey, uh, obviously you want results on the field more than anything else. But uh, to have some uh, performances recognized for the young and those who have been there before—pretty cool. Pretty cool night for the Jets. All right, on to our good martini now. And this is good in the fact that it's coming out. It's not good that this is happening, but. You know, elections have consequences also is kind of the underlying layer here, because without the Republicans taking back the House, this testimony probably never happens. Uh, The House of Representatives under Republican control is taking a look at uh, the Justice Department and the FBI. And yesterday, former FBI Special Agent Nicole Parker offered pretty powerful testimony on how uh, the FBI is weaponizing against uh, conservatives. Here's part of what she said.
0: The FBI became politically weaponized, starting from the top in Washington and trickling down to the field offices. Although FBI employees have their First Amendment rights, they are not at the liberty to allow their personal political views or preferences to determine their course of action or inaction in any investigation. Lady Justice must remain blind. Those that do not uphold these responsibilities cause a negative ripple effect throughout the agency in the field. It's as if there became two FBIs, Americans see this and it is destroying the Bureau's credibility, causing Americans to lose faith in the agency and therefore the hardworking and highly ethical agents who still do the heavy lifting and pursue noble cases. It makes it very difficult for agents to do their job when the FBI loses the respect of the American people. There has also been a shift in recruiting practices, a lowering of the eligibility requirements which is negatively impacting the agency's performance. And all this adds up to a loss of trust in the FBI by many Americans and low morale among many FBI employees.
1: Uh, So it's become politicized. Uh, Conservatives at the Bureau certainly feel like they can't speak their minds about uh, certain topics, so forth, Jim. uh, She got very emotional at times. You know, we've talked about FBI cringe moments a lot on this show, going back to Disney CTU and a whole lot of other things. But the fact that there are whistleblowers now coming forward, giving more specifics and more details about... The rotten culture in a lot of ways at the FBI, it's
2: chilling, but hopefully it gets us to some improvement at some point. Greg, the most recent number I've found for the number of special agents, which is usually what you think of when you see FBI agents and think of all those TV shows and stuff like that, it's just under 14,000. Right, So that's a lot. So when somebody says the FBI is this, the FBI is that, um, look, it's you know got a lot of folks in it and it's not accurate to say it aligns with one ideology or the other. But when most of management aligns with a particular political ideology or has strong views about one political leader or one political party, then all of a sudden you do have an issue Then it does become group thing and it becomes a matter of you know, you could have many of those uh, special agents in the field uh, having a wide variety of political perspectives. But if everybody up at the you know, top floor of headquarters all thinks the same way, all feels the same way, then you're going to run into problems. I think it was this very, uh, you know, infamous moment described by James Comey in his autobiography where he talks about how he has to disclose that they found more classified information when they were looking into Anthony Weiner uh, related to came back and forth from Hillary and her staff, someone, he didn't say who, and it's I just described an FBI lawyer. I, I strongly suspect it's that one of the two lovebirds. But uh, so you know, somebody asked, do you realize that by revealing this, you could be making Donald Trump the next president of the United States? And Comey says, that is a good question. I really wish he'd responded, no, that is a stupid question, because our job is not to decide this. Our job is not to care about this. Our job is to tell the truth. And when the FBI director has said to Congress, I will keep you updated. If there are any new developments of this, and it's a month before election day, you have to tell Congress. You do not have the option of withholding that information because you don't want it to affect the outcome of a presidential election. Uh, That's where we are here. And I have no reason to think that there's been a dramatic difference in the thinking and the mentality, groupthink, I think probably is the word I should use, at the top levels of the FBI. Uh, what we hear here is troubling. You and I do a lot of FBI jokes about Johnson and Johnson and, you know, Theo, you asked for miracles and all that kind of stuff. But the country needs an FBI that it can count on and rely on and not feel like it's turned into a partisan cudgel that one party uses to harass the other. Deeply frustrating, but at least somebody's coming forward about this, and maybe this will force some sort of action that somebody in there in this, uh, in the chain of command is going to realize, hey, we cannot be seen as an ideological organization.
1: That's no, well put. The question is, does anything happen as a result of this? My guess is with this administration and the Democrats controlling the Senate, that this committee hearing is probably about as far as it's going to get. I'm not really sure what legislation you could do. So you shine the sunshine on it and, and, and you hope that there's some pressure there. But Jim, one of the things that's frustrating, we talk about the double standards between left and right all the time. Whistleblowers are a perfect example. Whistleblowers who condemn policies that would be embraced by the left—they are demonized. And whistleblowers who come out to, uh, you know, criticize things that Republicans did. They are absolute heroes. They're the definition of a true and honorable public servant. We saw this, you know, with Alexander Vindman and everything uh, Mm -hmm. during the Ukraine situation. So I think whistleblowers might be the most crystal clear example of bias in the media and in our politics.
2: Yeah, I think somebody had summarized it as, when the leak is bad for Republicans, the news is the substance of the leak. When the leak is bad for Democrats, the story is how the information leaked. That's a good way to put it. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. I mean, think of a uh, a whistleblower against a, a
1: Democratic administration who was treated well by the press. I think you'd be very, very hard pressed to find one. And so it doesn't make me real confident that a lot's going to change here. But uh, the Republicans are doing what they can with the power they have uh, to shine some light here. And I think that's good. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And we briefly mentioned yesterday the fact that uh, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman was In the hospital at George Washington uh, University, he had uh, felt lightheaded at a uh, Democratic retreat following the State of the Union. A stroke has been ruled out. They're running a bunch more tests to determine whether he had a seizure or is at risk of seizures. And so, as we said yesterday, you know, we hope that his health uh, is as good as it can possibly be. But... In response to this medical episode, more is coming out about what Fetterman was capable of on the campaign trail and, more importantly, what he's capable of as a senator. And his campaign pretty much covered up the severity of the stroke as long as they possibly could. And now, in addition to the news of his hospitalization, uh, you've got Fetterman admitting that basically he hears people like the kids in Peanuts hear adults whether it's the parents or the teachers, you know, the wah, 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 wah. And that's why he needs that translation service that you saw at the debates. And I guess he's got it at the Senate in his office as well. Uh, and at the same time, the New York Times did a deeper dive on this, saying that, uh, you know, he rushed back too soon to the campaign trail and that stunted his recovery. And now it's uh, hard to tell whether there's going to be a, a full recovery on this. And so the question again, Jim, is, is that, We were misled. The people of Pennsylvania in particular uh, were misled. It seems like Fetterman is uh, struggling mightily uh, to do the work uh, of the job. Who knows what this latest health episode will contribute to that. Deception all the way around. And my further question is, who rushed him back? It wasn't Republican, so it was either himself, his wife potentially, the Democratic Party of Pennsylvania. But uh, the Democrats had a chance to do the honest thing here and either explain what his real condition was or get a different candidate, and they decided to try and trick the people of Pennsylvania instead.
2: Oh, Greg, yes, Republicans did. They could have conceded (laughs) that seat. They could have not run anyone. They could have said, "Okay, John Fetterman, you've had a terrible stroke, so you get this seat. We will not put up any candidates. We will just simply allow and we will we will allow you to run and oppose. But no, Republicans had to run Mehmet Oz, that unstoppable political <laughs> juggernaut that was with Mehmet Oz. But anyway, so here's I want to take you back to mid to late October, October 19th. Right. The Fetterman campaign releases a long letter from his doctor, Clifford Chen. He, some, he had seen his doctor, done a checkup. Chen said Fetterman is recovering well from his stroke and his health has continued to improve. Okay, I get that part. He said speech was normal. I don't know if that's necessarily what we all saw in the debate. The part that really jumps out is he says he has no work restrictions and can work full duty in public office. And this was a little bit before that debate against Oz that went really, really badly for him. Um, Folks like Joe Scarborough were saying, look, John Fetterman cannot communicate, and he cannot understand what's being said to him. This is a serious issue. Now, Fetterman won the race, and we can argue about why that was the case, but people in Pennsylvania decided they were more upset about the claim that Mehmet Oz didn't live in New Jersey than the clear health issues that Fetterman was dealing with. And they told us, again, he can you know, go back, has no work restrictions, and can work full duty in public office. Well, apparently, long before this hospitalization, I'm going to read to you from the New York Times today, straightforward. Quote, his adjustment to serving the Senate has been made vastly more difficult by the strains of his recovery, which left him with a physical impairment and serious mental health challenges that have rendered the transition extraordinarily challenging, even with the accommodations that have been made to help him adapt. They point out that he declined to be interviewed for the story, but AIDS and confidence describes his introduction to the Senate as, quote, a difficult period filled with unfamiliar duties that are taxing for someone still in recovery, meeting with constituents, attending caucus and committee meetings, appearing in public at White House events in the State of the Union, as well as making uh, appearances in Pennsylvania. The most evident disability is a neurological condition that impairs his hearing, right? Um, this is where you get into the muffled voice of the teacher in the Peanuts cartoon whose words could never be deciphered, right? That is not being able to report back for full duty. That, that is not no work restrictions It can work full duty in public office. That doctor's assessment, generously, I can say it's inaccurate. or we can say it's a lie. That's one of the reasons I don't think the public will be moved when there are you know when we inevitably get an assessment by the White House medical team that Joe Biden is in tip top shape and the most healthy and terrific 80 year old that's ever you know that's ever lived. Look, John Fetterman is is you know got some real problems. We said at the time, wow, he's not appearing on the campaign trail very much. When he does, he just reads a script for about t- 10 minutes. This guy doesn't look like he's okay. It sounds like he's got a lot to do in his recovery. And Democrats said, no, 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 you are, you are being ableist. You are being hateful to people. who You are being merciless. You're being harsh. You're being cruel, blah, blah, blah. Then we watched the debate and we're like, look, this is further evidence of this. And of course, they made the same, the same arguments. Well, here we are. It is February. Fetterman's been on the job for six weeks. And now they're saying that his continuing to campaign may have done permanent damage and he may never fully recover. That is a huge deal. And this says that everybody who was saying these were serious issues were right. And everybody who was saying this is just you people being ableist were wrong. And you also have to ask some very serious questions about, honestly, about Fetterman's family and their desire to see him run. You have to ask serious questions about the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. Oh, by the way, based on how things shaked out or shook out, there's an excellent chance that either one of his primary opponents probably would have won, won that race anyway. They certainly would have had a better debate. So that's where we are, Greg. We were right. There's nothing to be done about it now, but we knew we were right. We knew we were right. They knew we were right. And they lied through their teeth.
1: Lesson to Republicans, of course, is to run a candidate who people like and is actually from your state. Uh, That that usually works. Sorry, Commonwealth. Commonwealth. Uh, I think a gigantic apology is owed to Dasha Burns of NBC. Mm. Remember when the entire liberal media establishment descended on her like vultures after she said that he struggled in basic conversation? How dare you? And now here is the Fetterman himself and his team, at least, admitting basically everything she said was true. I haven't seen a single apology yet.
2: And I don't expect we'll see any. It's, It's all designed to be memory hold.
1: All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And uh, for that, we go to the pages of the Washington Examiner. So far, we've got two parts of this story, and I think there might be more coming. Uh, Gabe Kaminsky, investigative reporter over there. Uh, Part one was a story about this Orwellian-named group called the Global Disinformation Index, a British group with two affiliated U.S. nonprofit groups sharing similar board members, and basically their whole idea was to uh, promote media organizations they liked and then uh, trying to discredit ones that they thought were presenting disinformation. And shockingly, Jim, it's the conservative sites uh, that they thought were the ones that were not uh, being honest. And we're not talking about fringe stuff here. Let me give you a quick rundown of some of the uh, entities that they thought were just beyond the pale for disinformation. The American Spectator, The Federalist, The Daily Wire, Real Clear Politics, Reason, and the New York Post. There are some others in there as well. But, uh, Jim, trying to silence political speech, pretty sure that runs afoul of the uh, First Amendment. But uh, you say, oh, well, the government's not involved, so that's not really a First Amendment violation. Oh, contraire. Part two of Mr. Kaminsky's story points out, that the uh, disinformation group, the Global Disinformation Index, has received $330,000 from two State Department-backed entities linked to the highest level of government. So our own State Department is doing business with people trying
2: to muzzle conservatives. What do you make of this? The only good news, Greg, is that we don't get the musical number from Nina Uh, (laughs) Jankowicz. My colleague Judson Berger has a good piece about this. Um, You know, he begins with holy hell and continues on. A lot of praise to the Washington Examiner for uncovering this. But we've kind of known that this effort has been at work really for the better part of four or five years. Since the 2016 campaign, unsurprisingly, in a presidential campaign, you're going to have a whole lot of people saying my guy rocks, your guy stinks. And there are a whole bunch of people who are saying Hillary Clinton stinks. And because of the Russian government or the Internet Research Agency, putting a bunch of ads on Facebook and, you know, uh, social media and things like that, and that because they were critical of Hillary Clinton, a whole bunch of folks on the left chose to believe that the reason Donald Trump won the election was because Americans had been brainwashed by this disinformation Sweat out by the Russian government. Couldn't possibly be that they came to their own conclusions. Never mind that the ads that ran on Facebook were targeting self-identified, very conservative users of Facebook. Do you think a lot of of self-identified, very conservative folks were going to vote for Hillary? And that they only decided to vote against her when they saw that cheesy graphic of her fighting Jesus? Really? You think that was it? Okay, interesting. But he kind of put this, this, you can see this, the planting of this seed in the mind of the left, that what they believe is information. And anything that they don't like, anything they don't believe, anything they disagree with, well, it's not just a wrong idea. It's not just dumb. It's not just crazy right-wing stuff. It's dangerous disinformation. If you know somebody puts out a bad idea, you can say, well, okay, that's a dumb idea. You shouldn't do it. But if it's disinformation and if it leads back to a – well, then, then it's something sinister. Then it's something that the government might have a compelling interest in trying to suppress. I actually would argue it doesn't. Oh by the way the US already has several parts of the state department whose job generally focusing overseas is to say no this is foreign disinformation the correct story is xy and z. There's nothing wrong with the US government trying to you know trying to counter foreign disinformation by saying no here are the actual facts. There is a problem with the US government attempting to shut down the voices of Americans because this violates the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects your right to say anything you want. It doesn't matter if you are echoing Vladimir Putin. It does not matter if you're echoing Xi Jinping. I don't think you should do those things. I think those are really bad things to do. But the you know, our founding fathers recognized that once the government started going down this road, you were gonna end up having much further and more severe and more draconian censorship. Now, obviously, if you don't want to have the government stepping down, this next thing you can do is you put pressure on advertisers to say, oh, well, this is dangerous. Oh, this is bad. Right. Uh, but I should point out that as far we at this point we do not know whether National Review is on the group's non-public exclusion list, which flags what they consider to be the worst offenders, right? Judson, you know, goes to the list and he points out there are institutions on this list that he's not a big fan, right? Who have engaged in conspiracy theories, who've engaged in stuff that he doesn't like doesn't mean you want to shut them down. And the other thing is, you you also got real clear politics, as you mentioned. You got the New York Post, which had the Hunter Biden laptop story correct. Reason magazine. I mean, a government effort, you know, or quasi-government effort to suppress the the distribution of Reason magazine is basically making every paranoid libertarian conspiracy theory, (laughs) right? Like- uh, and they, they would be mad as hell, Greg, if they weren't always smoking weed all the time. Anyway, um, you kind of look at that and you just have the idea that like when, if you look at this and you say, well, we look for disinformation and the only place we found it was conservative and libertarian websites. Wouldn't that like you can't find a single entity on the left that's putting out disinformation? Really? I'm going to say was, was the discussion of GMOs one of the factors that got into that? How about... Um, I, I suppose you could say vaccine skepticism now is more, is there, you see more of it on the right, but it used to be a very left-wing, California, crunchy, essential oils crowd sort of thing. It all kind of depends. where. How do you measure disinformation? As Ronald Reagan has said, the problem with our friends on the left is not that they're educated, is that so much of what they know isn't true. That's, the, you know, that's your measuring stick. And unsurprisingly, a group of liberals looked for disinformation and decided it was coming from conservatives. This is very bad, and I'm glad that we're bringing a spotlight to this. I hope this gets halted in its tracks, but I fear, Greg, we've only removed the absolute worst part, which was Nina is singing.
1: <laughs> well, think about what's been revealed in just the last what, two or three months, we had the Twitter files showing how the FBI and DHS were actively telling Twitter which tweets and in some cases which accounts they wanted down. Then a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about Hamilton 68, this gigantic clearinghouse widely cited by the mainstream media as uh, you know the authority on what's disinformation. That was complete crap. And now you've got the State Department with our tax dollars funding Global Disinformation Index uh, elites trying to decide uh, which voices get to be heard heard this is a coordinated effort to stifle free speech and the government our government is actively involved in it in multiple ways it's chilling and it's got to stop and hopefully i don't know where it's going to happen with this administration but it's got to happen somewhere because this this is an
2: open question of whether we will have a first amendment that really means anything at this rate Wish we could end
1: the week on a slightly more optimistic note than that, Jim. But, uh, well, I can. I'm not going to be here uh, the first uh, three days of next week uh, because I get to be uh, down in Florida. I get to uh, go down there and and interview uh, one of our heroes from World War II and uh, taking a vacation day along with that. So uh, looking forward to seeing you back on Thursday. Chad Benson will be in my place uh, for the first few days next week. So have a great time. Don't let the world burn too much. And I'll see you on Thursday.
2: Well, Greg, I'm glad you'll be able to enjoy and, and do some important work down there. I, I don't think it's optimistic note that you won't be here next week, but we'll we'll try to hold down the forge. I
1: appreciate that. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. And please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us both on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific weekend. and Join Jim and Chad on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.